This episode of Hello PhD is sponsored by Promega and listeners like you. Thanks for your support. It's a webcam and a shock collar so that every time the tip of the pipette touches something that you didn't realize, you just get that jolt. Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. This week, we dip into the listener mailbag to answer your questions about graduate admissions during a pandemic, changing fields in grad school, and how to tackle your comprehensive exams. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 138. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. Dan, I just got back from the beach, so I'm feeling refreshed and feeling fine. You got the COVID in your lungs. You're feeling great. <laughs> were you safe out there? Yeah, we were very safe. We went to the Outer Banks of North Carolina to Hatteras, which is about as far as you can go on the Outer Banks. And there are very few people out there, so I don't think we really saw or interacted with many other people besides ourselves. So that was pretty good. And the weather was good. Did you get any sunburns? Did you see any fish? For the rest of us who didn't go anywhere other than our houses, tell us about it. I did a lot of fishing, Dan. As you know, that's something I really enjoy doing. So caught some fish, cooked up some fresh fish. That was good. You know, about the sunburn, it's so funny how my approach to the sun and the beach is now from when I was younger. I don't know if you ever did this, Dan, but I can remember my wife and I laying our towels out and laying out in the sun and sort of soaking up the rays. This time, Dan, I had my wide brim fisherman hat, a long sleeve shirt, uh, one of those things that goes around your neck that like, protects your neck from the sun. Uh, times You're wearing changed. a full bee suit? <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, so I did a great job of not getting sunburned. So that's definitely a win. Uh, how have you been, Dan? Uh, <laughs> same as the last time you talked to me, Josh. I am planning a trip up to Pennsylvania eventually. Hopefully where it's cooler, but that hasn't happened yet. I'll let you know when I get back. You know, really, to be honest, though, I mean, the vacation was great. Uh, having a change of scenery was great. But I got to admit, Dan, I think I'm struggling a little bit because we've been doing this pandemic thing, uh, quarantining thing since really mid-March. So I don't even know how many months that is now. And, you know, we were talking about it before we started recording. It really has felt like a marathon but I feel like I'm at the end of the marathon and now I have to immediately run another marathon. <laughs> you know, as the working from home stretches on, the kids are going to be doing schooling from home at least through, you know, December, January. And it's tough. It's an Ironman, right? Isn't that a marathon on top of a different marathon plus swimming? Yeah, I think, I think that's what we're facing, you know. And I still chuckle to myself when the universities were first shutting down and we were having conversations like, all right, well, we're going to close down for two weeks and then we'll reevaluate <laughs> how naive we all were back then, right? Times change. But, you know, I mean, if we end up doing this, this pandemic-related stuff, messing up our schedule for a year and a half, on one hand, that's a long time as we're going through it. But I don't know, Dan, think back over a year and a half ago. I mean, time goes quickly, right? A year and a half... Uh, moves by pretty fast. So hopefully before too long, this will be a distant memory that we tell stories about. I can guarantee it will be a memory. You will never forget this for the rest of your life. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. Well, we hope all of our listeners out there are just doing okay with this. You know, we really all 
all of us as humans living on earth right now have had to readjust our expectations, realizing that, yeah, this isn't a sprint. This isn't just a temporary inconvenience, but something we're all continuing to live, live with, whether we're working from home or we're really radically adjusting what lab work looks like and research looks like. I've had a lot of conversations with the students in my program who are in new labs and they're learning how to do new techniques under all of the the new restrictions and social distancing with their their bench mentors and um, it's a different world but we do the best we can and like you said Dan it's something we won't forget and we're going to talk a little bit about COVID and its impact on graduate school but before we get to that Josh tell us about what beer you took to the beach because I think that's something people need to know about yeah I've got a different beer and you know anytime I go on a beach trip I'm looking for something that's easy to drink something that's going to be refreshing in the hot sun. Uh, but, you know, Dan, you're, I think you're like me on this maybe, but I'm not a fan of beers like a Pilsner or a lager. Not really my thing. I want a little more flavor. So I was excited when I saw... I mean, I do like bubble water. Same thing, right? <laughs> same thing. And probably uh, better for hydration. Uh, but I saw this in the store. This is New Belgium's Voodoo Ranger American Haze. Show me show me the can. Let's see if it's the same one I got from the grocery store. Is this the one you got? Uh, no, but I recognize the skeleton. He's on all the cans. The skeleton. He's a, got his American pride and his guitar. Um, uh, and what drew me to this one, Dan, it had a lot of the words that are things I typically like. So voodoo <laughs> ranger. <laughs> I love a good ranger. Ranger Rick. Hello, boo boo. Hello, Mr. Ranger, sir. Ranger Rick. That's a magazine. Oh, yeah, that you're talking, of- <laughs> you're, you're crossing your wires. You got Yogi bear. <laughs> uh, but to get back on topic here, uh, so it said that the American Haze has notes of passion fruit and freedom, and those were not actually the words that drew me to it. But What it, does freedom taste like, Josh? <laughs> uh, but that this beer is supremely drinkable, juicy, and unfiltered IPA brewed with all American hops. I love an unfiltered beer. I love juicy hops. So I had high hopes, and this comes in at a 5.0 ABV, only 30 IBUs, so... Some flavor, but could be refreshing. And I'm not a huge fan. It doesn't hit the spot. It falls flat. Too much freedom for you, huh, Josh? <laughs> too, much, too much freedom or too much... It's overpowering uh, freedom flavor. <laughs> I guess so. You know, maybe it's this conditioned response where... Dan, you can see this. Can you see this through the video? It's got this haze, that nice, hazy, golden color. Absolutely. And you probably just looking at this, you have an expectation of what that's going to taste like. Can you taste it in your mind? I can. Absolutely. I mean, all the words, hazy, IPA, passion fruit, freedom. (laughs) I know exactly what it tastes like. You know, you take a big drink of this and at first it tastes like, oh yeah, this is beer. This is an IPA. Here it comes. And then nothing happens. It just sort of falls flat. So I'm going to drink through. Luckily, I just had a six pack of this and uh, I'm going to finish off the last one or two, but Probably would not recommend. By next summer, it'll be gone. (laughs) Maybe. I wish you were here so I could give you one, Dan. That's right. Just pour one out for me, Josh. All right. You'll have fewer. Definitely want to take this opportunity to thank our Patreon patrons, Josh. And we have a new patron, Dan. (laughs) It is not me. It is a different Dan. Dan, Dan, Thank thank you very much for that. Are you supporting us on Patreon now, Dan? I am thankful to myself all the time. And also to this other Dan. Okay, thanks, That's thanks, right. Dan. Appreciate your support. And we also want to mention uh, Promega is there to support you. So a lot of people are going back. You're maybe starting in a new research lab. 
and you realize you have no idea how to do the task that your advisor just asked you to do, uh, Josh, you and I have been there for sure. But whether it's pouring gels or making buffers or optimizing a protocol, Promega is there to help with anything that your lab throws at you. They have tips and tricks and tools on their techniques and tools page for at the Student Resource Center. So if you go to promega.com slash HelloPhD, hopefully that will bail you out of the blank look that you give to your advisor when they ask you to mix up that buffer. We'll definitely check that out. Promega does a great job. They really have that Student Resource Center that's very well laid out. Lots of good stuff on there. Worth your time to check it out. Well, Josh, let's get to the main topic. We have a bursting mailbag. People have lots of questions, so let's get to it. Let's dig in. Josh, our first question that I snuck in here while you were not paying attention is specifically for you. It says, Dear Dan and Josh, do you have a list of favorite board games? This is somebody who who heard about the fact that you like board games, Josh, and I, maybe they're in a place where they're quarantining, and as from David, maybe quarantining, maybe needs a list of things to play very quickly. Do not take a lot of time because I know you will try to. Favorite board games at this moment. Dan, you really threw this on me. You know, this is... Uh... Well, I didn't want a dissertation. I wanted a quick answer. Right, Dan, that is... I mean, that's a really tough question. I mean, that's like someone saying, quick, recommend a beer for me. Right, because I'd be thinking, well, what do you like? You know, do you like uh, IPAs? Do you like stouts? Do you like lighter beers? Do you like sours? Um, but I can just tell you. So for me, probably one of my favorite board games for quite a while, and still is uh, the game Terra Mystica. That's probably one of my favorite games to play. Kalis, that's one, Dan. I think we played a long time ago. Years and years. Years and years ago. Uh, kind of a newer game. This is one uh, that folks could probably check out, easy to find on Amazon, a game called Cartographers. Uh, that's a really fun game. You can play with your friends. You get to write uh, write on paper. You flip some cards over, write things down. It's uh, pretty fun. Another one, Dan, that, that my family enjoys that I think uh, a lot of our listeners might enjoy. Uh, Dan, do you like birds? I was waiting for you to say the bird game. You've been trying to get me to play this game for three years now. Yeah, this game actually won a Game of the Year, a very prestigious Game of the Year award in Germany last year, uh, the game Wingspan by designer Elizabeth Hargrave. And one thing that's cool about Elizabeth, she is a birder, a bird aficionado. And this is a game that has the theme of birds in it. Almost playing the game, the cards, you have this feel of sort of opening up one of those Audubon bird guides you know what i mean i do yeah and and so you not only play this really fun game but you learn a lot of cool facts about birds at the same time so uh, wingspan definitely one to check out and one thing that's cool about this game dan i meant to i'm glad you mentioned this because uh i think i meant to mention this on a show about a year ago when when this game was was sort of hitting the shelves and getting a lot of press um, there was even a write-up about this game i believe it was in science magazine that's incredible yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, Wingspan, that's another one I could recommend. Well, David also asked about the name of the game where we interviewed the game designer, and that was Isaac Childress, who designed Gloomhaven way back in episode 113. So, you can go ahead and check that out if you are a game nut like Josh is. Yep. Definitely worth checking out. Thanks, David. This was fun to uh, talk about some games here at the top of the ship. All right. Next question. This one comes from Leslie. Dear Josh and Dan, I'm an undergrad at a small liberal arts college looking to apply to biomedical PhD programs this year. 
At my school, there are very few opportunities to do research outside of course-related labs. I've listened to a lot of your podcasts about applying to grad school, and I've learned that research experience is one of the most important parts of a PhD program application. I was able to intern in a lab in a large research institution last summer, and I was admitted to an REU program on the West Coast this summer. Josh, what does REU stand for? REU stands for Research Experience for Undergrads. Okay, that I was not familiar with that. Okay, so... Leslie goes on, like many programs, the REU is canceled due to the pandemic. I was really excited for this opportunity, and I am worried that this will hurt my chances of being accepted. Will admissions committees take into account the fact that most summer internship experiences were canceled this year? Should I mention on my application that I was admitted to the REU program? Love listening to your podcast on walks with my dog, and it has helped me to ease a lot of my fears about the graduate school. Keep doing what you're doing, Leslie. REUs, Josh, they're canceled. How do you get experience and will your application committee care? Uh, first, I wanted to say thanks to Leslie for listening while walking the dog because I found Dan, my prime podcast listening time typically has been driving to work or driving around and I've been doing a whole lot less of not that. Not anymore, it's not. <laughs> so finding creative times to listen to podcasts. Now, I know a lot of folks, a lot of our listeners have told us they used to listen in the lab. So I don't know, Dan, we should look if our listen stats went down when people weren't in the lab. Anyhow, I digress. This is a great question. And and Dan, you mentioned this one is for me. I, all, some of our listeners may know, but one of my um, real jobs when I'm not podcasting is I am a director of admissions for a biomedical PhD program. And this is a question that I get quite a bit recently. And that is during application season, during admission season, am I going to be negatively impacted because of some of these COVID-related changes, such as, um, and, and this was not mentioned by Leslie, but one I get a lot is last semester, last academic semester in the spring, a lot of institutions transitioned their coursework from the graded 4.0 scale ABCD to pass-fail. And I know a lot of undergraduates were worried that not getting those grades, not getting that GPA that we're used to would actually have a negative impact on their graduate school applications. And the other really big consideration, too, is what Leslie mentioned for PhD programs, as we've talked about many times, that research experience really is the number one component for being competitive for uh, for graduate school. And like Leslie and many other folks, almost all of the summer REU programs, summer research experience opportunities, and really probably even a lot of summer research opportunities at individuals' own institutions, if there was research available there, was canceled. And so what I would say, if I could give you any advice that might help you feel better, is this COVID pandemic situation is really unique. If there's a silver lining to it from this perspective, it's that literally everyone is going through it and literally everyone is experiencing the consequences of it. So from an admissions standpoint, Every applicant who applies to our program this fall will have had some disruption due to COVID, whether that's on their transcript with grades going pass-fail or research experiences that they would have taken part in last summer or even this fall, this upcoming fall also, that maybe aren't going to happen. So I would certainly do what what you mentioned, Leslie. I would make sure in your personal statement you mentioned that you had applied for this program and that of course, it ended up not happening because of COVID. Because I think what that can say to the admissions committee is that 
you know, you really are serious about research and you're interested in pursuing research opportunities um, by way of the fact that you applied to this RU, you were accepted, you were ready to go. And of course, due to COVID, it didn't end up happening. So I would absolutely be upfront that um, this is something you would have done and were going to do, but weren't able to. But this feels a little bit different. And I think you're coming to this, Josh everybody's grades will be pass-fail. And as a committee, I can look at that and understand whether pass actually means they got a good grade or not. And we can argue about whether classes really matter to your research success. But coming right out of undergrad, going directly into graduate school and not having lengthy research experience does feel different to me. Yeah. And, and you know, this is, this is the reality. And, and I'm glad you brought that up, Dan, because I think this is important to say as well. So I think with all of the COVID disruptions to summer research programs um, and to research this fall, there is going to be a benefit to applicants who maybe they started research earlier in their undergraduate career. So maybe they had more research experience already built up before the disruptions occurred. Um, And also individuals who maybe were already graduated and they've been working full-time. They were already settled in these full-time research experiences um, right. post-undergrad. Individuals like that who maybe already had research experience built up might be at a little more of an advantage than they already would have been otherwise. So I guess my advice, all that being said, is if graduate school is really what you want to do and you're, you're sure that that's the step you want to take, you know, I would go ahead and, and take your shot anyway, um, but be prepared to, you know, be open to doing a postback program or looking for research employment, like a technician position for a year or so after graduation. And, and you know, this really is advice that goes beyond just this year during the pandemic situation. But this is advice uh, that we've given multiple times on the show before. Getting some extra experience after undergrad was something that we recommended to do before the pandemic. It's a great way to see if you like full-time research, maybe you haven't had the opportunity to do research on a full-time day-in, day-out basis before you take that plunge into grad school. And and by the way, you know, Dan, I know we, we run a very large program. We're bringing in about 100 grad students this year. And about 60% of our incoming students have done at least a year of full-time research post-undergrad as a technician or in a post-bac program. So you're not atypical if you take some extra time to do some research and get some additional experience after undergrad. And it it's definitely going to make you a more competitive applicant. This is one of those choices that's an investment. Uh, if you take the time now and you say, oh no, I'm wasting time that I could be in graduate school and graduating, the truth is By putting this time in, you will either A, decide you don't want to go to grad school and you've just saved five or six years, or B, it will make you a better researcher and may pay back with a shorter graduate research experience. And so I think it never hurts to take that time to be sure. Dan, you are totally correct. I 100% agree. It is not wasted time to get some extra experience right out of undergrad before grad school. And best of luck to everybody in the same situation it is, these are unprecedented times. If it hasn't been said enough before, we'll say it again. Uh, and so stick to it and, and keep chasing it and you'll get there. Well, do you want to pick up the next question? Sure. This summer, I graduated with an undergrad degree in mathematics, and I'm about to start a PhD in mechanistic biology focusing on plant genetics. Luckily, I've found a supportive supervisor with a background in computer science. 
I'm very hopeful she will be able to help me navigate the transition from a purely theoretical perspective to a mix of wet lab science and bioinformatics. I'm aware of how important the supervisor-student relationship is, and I'm glad I've developed this positive relationship. However, I'm struggling to find examples of students who have moved straight into a new topic after undergrad. The main difficulty I envision is the culture shock I'll face while working in the biology department and the different expectations and values relating to research. Do you have any advice about surviving and hopefully thriving by using my niche set of skills in this new environment? Thanks for any advice you have. I found your podcast both grounding and exciting. Keep up the good work, Ethan. It's a big one. It's a big change. Yeah, so Ethan is switching up field somewhat, going from theoretical math background to a little more applied wet lab biology type questions. Yeah, this one spoke to me, Josh, because as you know, I left my physiology PhD world and entered the world of carbon accounting and energy efficiency, um, which is what I do for a living now. And that was a, a really big change and one that I think a lot of people tried to talk me out of and was scary to me because I didn't have a background in any of those things. I just started doing it by getting a job in it. So um, I definitely feel where Ethan's coming from and I have strong opinions and it, on, and it's worth, on, the va- on the value of that. And it's worth saying, Dan, that you made that change because you were following interests that you had. It wasn't just a random, you were dropped into suddenly this new type of work. No, I wasn't forced to change fields. It was something that I wanted to do. And it was something that, and, and this would be something I would say to Ethan, hopefully you have a desire and a passion to understand this biological side, that it's not just well, here's like a random thing I could do with a mathematics degree, but it's a a question, a burning question like we talked about in the last episode that you really want to answer. And I think if that's the case, if you're bringing that passion to it, then uh, you are going to dive into it and learn that new field in a way that people who maybe came up through a biology undergrad and started graduate school, They'll learn the same information, but they'll learn it differently. And I think that perspective that you're going to bring from an outside field, from a mathematics perspective, is going to produce not additive results, but multiplicative or exponential results, because you're going to be able to combine two different worlds together. And that usually leads to that diversity that happens at the margins of the field. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dan. And from the perspective of sort of seeing what's going on within the biological sciences in the academic world... I mean, Ethan, I think I have some really good news to share with you, and that is you're going to be a hot commodity in your new program. In, in general, you know, a lot, of, a lot of biology, a lot of biological sciences research over the last five to 10 years or so is really shifting in the direction of more computational approaches. So there are a lot of labs, Dan, that five, 10 years ago were purely wet lab. They were doing molecular biology. They were doing sort of more wet lab genetics um, that now are, are moving towards more computational approaches. And what PIs are really looking for, they're really looking for these individuals, these trainees to come in with some of these skills. Because in some cases, as labs are evolving, these PIs don't necessarily have those skills either. But there really has been a shortage of trainees coming in who already have these skills. And, and I can say that I think it's probably, in general, easier to come in with some of the math and computational knowledge and background and learn the biology 
than it is to go the other way around. That being said, both are possible. And I know many students and postdocs who, who came in not knowing the computational skills and they made it a point to learn those skills because they were either interested in it or that's the direction their research was going or they just wanted to make themselves more marketable. I actually knew a postdoc a few years ago who had no experience doing programming and decided to teach herself programming to get more competitive for a faculty job. And she did it and went on the faculty job search and had multiple offers and now uh, runs a lab at a really great uh, research institution. So I think Ethan coming in with these skills, he's going to be seen as very useful um, with what he knows. I, I think you're so right, Josh. And what I don't want Ethan to do is to be tempted not to learn the biology. I think you could come in as a superstar programmer and say, give me the problem in my language and I will solve it with code without taking the time to understand the world that it's coming from. And I think that would be a mistake. Um, it would be tempting because you could just stay in your world of mathematics and and computation and not actually understand the nuance of the field that you're in. So, so my argument is that he should take the time to actually to learn the biology and to, to bring his approach to that biology. And the other thing I would warn him about is the level of imposter syndrome that he's almost certainly guaranteed to feel, um, to walk into a room where people have spent the last 10 years of their lives, uh, even as students, learning about this subject. It's going to be intense, and, and they will feel the same way about you as a computational biologist, that, that they will feel like you are operating beyond their realm of understanding, but just be ready for it and, and recognize that everybody faces it and that you can work through it. You're so right, Dan. And I think if it gives Ethan any comfort from, from the other side, all grad students come in not knowing stuff. And, and I think sometimes grad students, especially new grad students just starting out, don't realize that the expectations are probably lower <laughs> than they think, <laughs> than they think. And you know, and I mean that in a very encouraging way in that there's not an expectation that you're going to know everything when you're coming into a new lab, to a new research environment. So, you know, Dan, you know, you mentioned this, you know, being humble, being honest and upfront about what you don't know. And, and really the main thing is just be eager and open. And like we talked about with you, Dan, hopefully you're going in this direction because you have some innate interest in it. And so that's exciting. You get to take these skills that you've learned in undergrad, and now you get to apply them to some research questions that hopefully you're really interested in. Just be open with your advisor and those in your department about what you don't know. And I think you'll be okay. Absolutely. Okay, Josh, last question comes from Rhiannon. Hey, Josh and Daniel, I've been listening to your podcast for the better part of my PhD, and I absolutely love it. It's my favorite thing to listen to during the long days of cell culture. I remember those days, Josh. Can I can I tell an aside right here, Dan? Go for it. I was talking to one of my students this week who is in their new lab, and one of the challenges that, that they were facing this week was being brand new to cell culture and trying to learn cell culture when you are working in a cell culture room that currently has an occupancy limit of one person at a time. That is challenging. So if you could imagine, uh, you know, working with their bench mentor, trying to explain cell culture when the two people couldn't be in the cell culture room at the same time together. So I think lots of hand motions at the door and maybe watching some YouTube videos. 
It's a webcam and a shock collar, so that every time the <laughs> tip of the pipette touches something that you didn't realize, you just get that jolt. <laughs> I'm going to patent that. Okay, getting on with the question, Josh. With the current COVID-19 situation, I've decided to use the time away from the bench to work on my comprehensive exams. I was wondering if you guys would consider doing an episode on your experiences with your comprehensive exams and helpful tips to those of us who are currently going through the process. Thank you for the great advice and insight into the everyday struggles of grad students. Cheers, Rhiannon. Josh, comprehensive exams, I barely remember. I've blocked it out. Yeah, I mean, this is a great topic idea. I can, I can say honestly that my comprehensive exam, or specifically the oral defense of my comprehensive exam, the, the format of the one I took, there was a written grant proposal part of the exam, and then there was an oral defense part of the exam. The oral defense part was one of the singularly worst parts of my graduate school experience, bar none. <laughs> it scarred me. I can still remember how I felt very clearly. That was definitely a low point. You survived it. And, and so do you have advice for Rhiannon as she's going through this process? Yeah, I, I, I do sort of. Um, yes and no. Um, you know, I think a challenge for covering this topic, and this might be a reason why we haven't covered comprehensive exams specifically on the show before, is there's so much variability and a wide range of formats and expectations of comprehensive exams depending on the field you're in, but even beyond that, from department to department within the same university, at my institution, there are 14 different PhD programs just within our bi biomedical umbrella, and no two exam formats are the same with regard to how the exam is administered, you know, when during the training, is it after your first year or your second year or some other time? What's the scope of the exam? What are the expectations? So I think because of those wide differences in how the comprehensive exam is structured, how you might prepare could be very different depending on the format of the exam. Yeah, I recall mine being some, at least the beginning of it was some form of essay questions. And I remember yours was a grant proposal effectively. And those are very different approaches. Yeah, I mean, mine was even, I don't know if you remember how much time you had, but I remember we had six weeks out of the lab entirely to write this grant proposal on a topic unrelated to our research. Yeah, that's a lot. And and so, as you were saying, 14 different programs within one university, they're all different. And so, it'd be difficult to give advice generally about comprehensive exams without knowing specifically about what Rand is going through or what this university does. Yeah, but you know, I think I do have some, some general advice. What I can recommend is this... The first, this might be obvious, but make sure you understand the format and what the expectations are for passing. What is, and I guess what I'm trying to say is what does a successful exam look like? What are the rules of the game, Josh? You know, I'm a gamer, Dan, as we've talked about. And, and honestly, that's really how, as a student, that's how I approached school, at least the parts that were not research, because I don't think you could really, uh, research didn't really uh, cooperate with my gamesmanship, but, uh, but the academic part of my training really did. And you're absolutely right. What are the rules of the game with regard to your specific comprehensive exam and how do you win the game? Meaning uh, what are the expectations and how do you do well? So for your, for your uh, grant style proposal, what were the rules of that game? How did you win that? You know, that was a tricky one because for a grant proposal, you know, like in real life, 
how you do and the marks that you receive end up being fairly subjective depending on the people who evaluate your writing. So in, I guess in some ways, it's a little bit hard to know how to thread that needle. And, and honestly, that's true in real life too, when people write grants. And we've talked about this on the show too. Anything that's subjectively judged, there's so much variability between reviewers or even with the same reviewer from grant proposal to grant proposal. So, you know, hopefully some program, and this would be worth talking to your director of graduate studies about if you have this type of proposal. I do know of some programs that have really put an emphasis on trying to um, develop consistent and fair ways of evaluating something that varies as much from student to student, like a grant proposal on different topics. But it would be really useful to know from your department what type of rubric or assessment um, that they're utilizing to to grade these these proposals. Certainly, there will be some the guidelines that you should not violate. So it's due at a certain time. They may have some expectation about either the length of it or the sections that it should contain. There are almost certainly expectations about how it's referenced, expectations about how large the program, even in the situation where you're writing this freeform grant proposal, it's not freeform. There are, there's a format that you should adhere to as a student to ensure that the people receiving it can read it clearly and understand it. And so uh, just don't violate those things <laughs> at the beginning and the hopefully the content falls together. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. You do want to you do want to make sure you you dot those i's and cross those t's. But I, but I think one other thing you can do, especially, I mean, really any format, but especially talking about grant proposal style comprehensive exams, make sure you're getting all the support that you're allowed to get. I was going to say the same thing. Are you allowed to to talk to people or not talk to people? And and follow those rules. And, and this is somewhere that I, this is an area where I have seen students stumble because maybe they weren't sure who they were allowed to talk to and what type of feedback they were allowed to get. And, and some students taking the exam really walked up to that line and they took advantage of, you know, getting as much feedback. Maybe it's getting feedback on uh, the topic that you're writing about, maybe if it's a proposal, the specific aims that you put together, even if you aren't allowed to get feedback on the actual writing. Uh, because I think where I think a trap that a lot of students where it goes wrong on a proposal style comprehensive exam is the scope of the aims is off. It's either way too broad. This tends to be the side that I think more students um, err on the side of is it's just way too big of a proposal or, or it is too narrow. But, you know, if your aims themselves, if the scope of your aims themselves are kind of off base of what the expectation uh, that your faculty reviewers are looking for, it's going to be really, really hard to write a proposal that's going to have a great outcome. Um, so if you have the ability to get some feedback on the scope of your aims before you jump into writing, absolutely make sure you do that. Um, but the other thing I would recommend really before, hopefully before you get too far into the writing process is talk to older students in your program who have gone through the process. You know, what worked for them? What were the challenges they faced? 
you know, looking back on it, what are some things they might have done differently uh, or things they learned having gone through the process? You know, we've talked about, I think I've used this, used this analogy before, but there are two ways to avoid touching a hot stove. You can touch a hot stove and it burns you and you say, I'm not going to do that again. Or someone who, someone else who has touched a hot stove can tell you, hey, don't touch that. So learn from those who have gone through the process before you. And this is perfect advice in that federated siloed system where every department has their own method. The only way you're going to learn something is by talking to people who have gone before you in that specific program. Absolutely. And, and you know, I think most grad students are very willing to share their experiences on the comprehensive exam. I know, I remember I mentioned just a few minutes ago, I had a really bad experience and I had a very good friend in grad school who was a, a little bit behind me, who was very aware of the experience I had. And so she was very uh, interested in why my experience was so bad uh, so she could avoid some of the same pitfalls. And she did because of uh, you know me sharing some things I wish I would have done differently. But, but you know, Dan, one, th- one other thing that I would be remiss if I didn't say, and this is not necessarily helpful to answering this particular question from Rhiannon, but I have a lot of feelings and thoughts about comprehensive exams in general. And sometimes something I have observed more than a few times is that in practice, these exams don't always do a very good job of assessing what program leaders probably think that they are assessing. And Dan, you know that I tend to be a little bit skeptical of testing in general, especially when those tests are high stakes and used to determine who's in and who's out. Like the GRE, Josh? <laughs> like the GRE. But I've seen so many examples, Dan, of students who were doing really good work in the lab leading up to their comprehensive exam who really stumbled at the step of of doing the exam. And in some cases, that really derailed their progress and their confidence. Um, and in some cases... In extreme cases, it, it led to them choosing to step off the, the PhD path entirely just because of how that exam um, initially went. And I could talk about this for a long time. I really do have a lot of thoughts about this. Uh, maybe we'll save that for another episode. But I want to make sure to say that if anyone out there, you know, they're in grad school and they love research and they know that a career in science, a career in research, or, or some other career they know they need a PhD for is what they want to do. But the wall that they hit is that comprehensive exam. Please don't let that first completely break you down and derail your plans. But don't let that stop you. You know, if you get in a bad situation with your comprehensive exam, talk to your DGS, talk to your PI, talk to your chair. I know all programs certainly have rules with these comprehensive exams where, and, and this is why there's a lot of anxiety from graduate students about these exams because it sort of is an exit point, right? Where most programs, if you don't pass this comprehensive exam, maybe the first or second time, maybe you get a second try, then the idea is you might be out of the program. But you should also know that in academia, <laughs> there are very few rules that are set in stone. And if I can just share a story from my time in graduate school, I had a friend who was in graduate school and he was amazing, an amazing researcher. He was so good in the lab, way better than I was in the lab, Dan. And I mean, that's not saying a whole lot, but he was great in the lab and he failed his comprehensive exam three times before finally passing it. And the reason that's significant is 
our department had a rule that if you failed the second time, you were out. But he failed the second time. But it was so clear that, you know, that's where he needed to be. Like, he was a good grad student. He was a good researcher. And so he talked to the DGS. He talked to his PI. And they made some accommodations. And he was able to take it a third time. He got some extra support, of course. And he passed. And Dan, he's actually, he's like the CEO of a company, of this biotech company now, <laughs> doing really well. Uh, so I guess the, the moral of the story is, if you get an outcome that you don't like on this exam, you know, please, this is not an indictment on your ability as a researcher, your ability to do science and your ability to um, succeed in a scientific career. Well, I'm, I'm pretty intrigued, Josh. I hadn't connected the dots on the comprehensive exam and and its value in assessing progress and performance i had just accepted it as a student as a, here's another hoop to jump through and you jump through it and you jump through a bunch of more hoops and finally you get a degree but um you know i'm, I'm thinking back on some of our conversations about the gre and about how it's not necessarily measuring the thing that is a a proxy for success as a researcher and so I would love to hear from our listeners who maybe struggled through a comprehensive exam or who um, maybe they did great, but it, it was a terrible way to assess their performance. I think having some of those stories would help us to maybe wrap an episode around some of the things that you'd like to talk about, which is what is the role of the comprehensive exam and how should it be structured and how do you know that it's not working? So, I think that could be a future episode if people would write to us with their experiences. Yeah, absolutely. It's a big part of the pro- it's a big part of the process. So, um, and I know it's something that grad students really do think a lot about and stress about, and it is a big hoop or a really high stakes hoop that they have to jump through. All right, Dan. Well, this has been this has been great. I love doing this. I love you know we get covered a lot of ground, Josh. Yeah, we get so many questions from from listeners through email, through tweets, and you know, we try to respond to as many of them as we can. And, you know, Dan, we really try to think about topics that are going to be interesting and useful uh, to as many listeners as possible. And we get tired of talking and we don't have many of the answers. So we try to bring on as many great guests um, as we can to share their insights and expertise with you. But I always love these opportunities to talk on the show about some of the things that, that our listeners are, are facing in their day-to-day lives. And it sounds like more of them happening with COVID-19 going around the country. So um, please continue to write to us. Again, if you have a question or a topic idea, we would love to hear it. You can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or you can send us a tweet at hellophd. If you like the show, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love the feedback. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron. Just go to our website, hellophd.com, and click the Become a Patron button, or visit patreon.com slash hellophd. And thank you to the ongoing support from our patrons. All right, Dan, this is always a, a good time to talk to someone other than my family. You've got a dog. You could talk to the dog. I you know, actually, the dog did not bark during our recording tonight. It's amazing. Yeah, our listeners should know uh, how much time I spend editing out the random barks from Scooter when I'm editing the podcast. We'll have to release a, a uh, deep cut of all of these scooter barks someday. All of our Patreon patrons, here's five minutes of the dog barking during our recording. And Daniel yelling at the dog through the TV. All right, Dan, you have, uh, you have safe travels, and I'll look forward to uh, talking to you again soon. All right, we'll see you next time, Josh.